Hey everybody, you're listening to Beyond Recognition. Before getting into the next episode, I just wanted to thank everybody for the positive feedback. Thank you all who listened to the first episode of the podcast, made comments, and subscribed to our YouTube channel. I was shocked for the lack of a better word. With the reaction, including us entering the iTunes charts in several countries. So thanks everybody who has checked us out. As some of you might know, I've been seriously sick over the last few months of the summer and it took me a while to get back to work. Right now I'm finally back on my feet and is ready to rock. We have a few wonderful conversations coming out. And if you're listening to this podcast for the very first time, my name is Dan and I'm the host of Beyond Recognition and your personal guide exploring various forms of creativity. Before getting into the new episode, check our Patreon page, patreon.com slash beyondrecognition, where you could get the early access to the upcoming episodes and lots of cool stuff coming out. This is the episode 2 and my guest today is John Wright, the founding member of No Means No and the Hanson Brothers. Recently John got back to playing with his new project, Dad Bob. I got the chance to talk to John before he would get on his first tour since 2013. In this episode of Beyond Recognition, we're discussing punk rock, conducting music and musical language, alternative tentacles living in Canada and comfort zone. So tune in and listen to our conversation with John Wright. It took people several decades to realize that if you are an artist creating something in a specific niche or field, these aspects put certain limitations on you. And musically speaking, sometimes choosing a certain style literally means choosing the way of living, which is true for a lot of genres, but more significant with punk rock. How do you see these aspects being a punk rock musician well um i mean punk rock uh was what inspired me and my brother rob to actually be a band and make music and it was punk rock in the the late 70s was so fresh and and so exciting and so energetic it it was very attractive in that way uh, other than the mainstream music was rather boring and all hierarchical, how do you say that? Hierarchical. (laughs) (laughs) See, my English, no good. But, um, uh, um, and, you know, it's all just kind of glitz and showbiz and stupidity. And and I, you know, and uh, so, uh, but the the, the sort of ethos in in the small scene that we grew up in in Victoria, British Columbia, was essentially, you know, do do what you want. And um, it was very inclusive, certainly at the beginning. Uh, I mean, punk rock evolved into, bands became pigeonholed, they became a type of punk rock band, a type of hardcore band. And, and that's kind of the, never, the, the, the inevitable evolution of music as it becomes more commercialized and popular and, and whatnot. But we started out with that, you know, okay, this it's anything goes, and it was all just about playing loud and hard and, and honestly. Um, and when Robbie and I began playing together, it was just we it was just him on bass and me on drums, so we we had no choice. Well, you know, we were different for 
for, for no other reason than that and wrote songs that suited just bass and drums. It's not that we planned to be that way forever, but um, it, that's just was the nature of how things got started. And so my approach to music having my brother being eight years older me and growing up from the 60s and 70s and all the various forms of rock and he got very much into jazz and blah 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 and i went through school learning to play drums and learned you know so i was exposed of course to concert music and then a jazz band and i was taught from very beginning to play with traditional grip on my drums so all of this is part of what forms our, our, our musical lexicon and although punk rock was the inspiration there's plenty of other music out there plenty of other sounds plenty of other ways of arranging and expressing and um, so we never really kind of fell into that into those genres or those uh, being very specific type of band and for me I never wanted to be you know it was always about you know just where can music go but the the bottom line was that it was, you know, you're playing honestly from your heart and playing hard and putting your energy in. Uh, even if the songs aren't screaming loud fast, they can be. But even if they aren't, they're still honest and energetic. I'm always amazed to an extreme degree when these, you know, we, we are talking about in the context of punk rock, when some of the artists channel their influences not from let's say uh, a jazz drummer like Roy Haynes or Billy Cohen or you know anybody else but you know channeling this Essex into your style of play which is you know probably it would be uh, good to provide an example uh, a friend of mine he's an iconic drummer from the 90s and he's well known for putting the snare drum below his knees like you know almost you know down to the ground which is you know a lot of the people really can't play in this way but he somehow found it which is uh, also you understand from the practical standpoint it affects your physicality expressivity in a lot of different ways oh for sure yeah and, and i've always approached because i guess you know my first learning to play the drum set for instance was all sort of that's quasi big band school school stage band stuff and you approach jazz drumming entirely different than approaching rock and roll drumming i've discovered over my life and now especially with dead bob that really my strength as a musician is is an arrangement and i've always been that's been what's behind all of my decisions musically is how things are arranged and and in that context i play the drum set more as a musical instrument than as a beatbox but mm. of course i'm pounding away i'm pounding away playing punk rock or rock and roll or whatever but within that pounding i'm always listening to how the drums sound and why i am hitting this tom at this time and why this fill is the fill i will put in rather you know what i mean like the scope is larger than the the simple formats behind rock and roll drumming it's very interesting because i've always been like listening to your interplay with rap which is obviously a notable part of your music i've been thinking about like how these two people being brothers found their musical language well what you're talking about is is much more about the compositional factor which is also what i'm talking about uh 
in terms of the conducting music and how parts are written or there were also some aspects of like the feel of the music oh yeah uh, and yes of course my brother and i maybe not so much because we're brothers but of course that's something about it and and that we fell into playing music together for more or less the same reasons not not completely really but i mean we're different people but i mean put it this way if you were the amount of time that my brother and i have been in a room playing music together and if you would imagine that was the tens of thousands of hours of having a conversation with one person eventually you're going to know what they're going to say yeah pretty much there will be no surprises you know you'll know you'll already know what's going to come out of their mouth and that's just the nature of of yeah interacting so closely for so long for so many hours uh, countless uh, and you know a lot of musicians are good musicians and they play with a lot of different people but they don't necessarily play with the same people for so long some do some don't but um, that in itself that conversation then becomes its own entity which is what you're saying about the the connecting a, 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 on a musical language it's inevitable that that would happen and when andy came into the band it was it was like someone who had something very interesting to add to that conversation mm -hmm. and and then became a three-way conversation but and i don't mean to say but but once the the those numbers start to when you start adding voices eventually it becomes harder to become one singular thing and uh, it's, of course it can be done everyone has to take a different role so three piece rock and roll seemed to me like the perfect combination that you have you will have all the elements that you need for rock and roll and and if the three people are able to bring how 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 should i say this when it's all when it's working when everybody brings the components that need, are needed to you know create a beautiful dish like you know tomatoes and bocacini or something it's like the perfect three then it's then then that's when the magic happens and 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 it really was it was uh, it was a long process like we and being in victoria it was we, you know we simmered for a long time before anybody even really saw us outside of Victoria. Uh, years and years of being a band and playing shows locally, friends, and maybe to Vancouver and, and whatnot. So when we did start venturing out, we'd already were already a thing. And then it just grew from there. To draw the parallel between No Means No of that era and these, um, let's say, that, that evolution that was br brought by, you know, Andy joining the band. Because obviously the collaborative part is an important aspect in what you're doing with Dead Bob. As far as I'm concerned, you've done most of this project remotely. So it's also interesting, like when you have these very different people who take your music and there are lots of different ways of uh, them interpreting what you're doing musically that you can't really control, but you can just rely on them. And, you know, I really think that it's one of these beautiful moments of creating something with like-minded people. Oh, yeah, yes. And Dead Bob now, you know, fast forward 30 more plus years, is really a, a very different, as you were saying, basically I've created this and then any other creation was not necessarily totally remotely. But yes, this is not a project of two or three people coming together and forming a new entity, i.e. Dead Bob. This is, an, is a much different approach to music. And an interesting one for me in the sense that, you know, when you're when you're creating music by yourself, 
obviously there's nobody else there with any input and you're not you know like i'm bass drums guitar so we're writing songs for bass drums guitar the palette is there there there's blank slate go and and having years and years of writing and arranging and lots of ideas that were never part of i never we're not part of no means no, you know, just songs and ideas that I would put together in demos that were in all sorts of various forms of completion, mostly not complete at all. And then, you know, no means no is done and I'm not touring and I'm, I'm, I'm doing other things with my life, uh, but I can revisit music from a, an entirely personal point of view, which is not a collaborative one. And the whole thing, fact that Dead Bob is a record and Dead Bob is a band is entirely by accident. Uh, not by accident, but by circumstance. Uh, you know, I went on to own a pub here in, in Powell River uh, in British Columbia that completely absorbed my life. And I was wanted it to be end up being a brew brew pub. And I've been mm -hmm. brewing beer for brewing beer for well over 30 years as well. And I thought that's how I'm going to live out my days. I'm going to become a uh, go from an amateur brewer to a professional one and just make beer and live in London. That didn't happen for all sorts of reasons. And COVID, like so many artists and so many people, they just have a lot of time on their hands. It was no different for me. And I was out here and, and I have I built myself a workshop because I like to muck around with wood and build things. And, um, and then I realized I could set my drums up here. I haven't had my drum set set up where I lived since like 1985. Well, maybe no, one year mm -hmm. <laughs> in Vancouver. In Vancouver, my drum set was in my basement for one year in like 1994. <laughs> uh, other than that, it was in a practice space. You know, I went and worked on music and then came, came home, which was, of course, you know, not the, uh, the, the original way. Robbie and I were, you know, ensconced in my parents' basement working diligently away on music. But since 1985, that didn't, that didn't exist anymore. It was, more, it was a much more, uh, um, you know, um, well, whatever. The, you know, we had practice places and we got together and blah, blah, blah. So I had my drums and COVID, I had time. And it's like, oh, I'm going I'm to revisit all these songs. And it's just pro on my own. And uh, and so, you know, I want to finish some of this stuff, so it's done, and I can put it aside. And know I completed that, and I can do what I want. It doesn't matter what the instrumentation is, and that was a lot of fun. Now, but when the pub finally did sink, and you know, I found myself with no future in brewing. Likely, who knows? You never know what'll come around the corner. Decided I wanted to self-release this because there was a lot of No Means No fans out there that I knew would be happy. And when I said I was going to do it, it was a huge response. And it's like, okay, let's just put some music out. Um, but then it became, well, I'm not. I've got nothing else to do here, <laughs> <laughs> and I have no income. <laughs> so maybe I should put a band together and try to do this live. And and that's kind of how it all sort of fell together in the last two years. As as to you know, I. Three years ago, I, if you asked me if I'd be in a band and, and going out and playing shows, I'd say no. Uh, but now I am. But the point of this long, meandering story is that uh, this all music came together in an entirely different way than, than No Means No did, or even the Handsome Brothers, or the show business giants, which mm -hmm. was you know incredibly diverse, fun music to play, and, and another outlet for for just imagination and and not worrying about 
what a song style was or anything like that. But when you come then to translate that to musicians, they didn't grow organic. It's not organically grown out of this group of people. It's like, here's the music. Now we need to, can we learn this and play it? So it kind of sounds like what it's written which is a huge challenge and it's a totally different approach. So this has been a big learning curve for me and, um, and I'm singing way more, which I swore I wouldn't do. Uh, I said, next band I'm in, I'm not singing at all. I just want to play the drums. Um, but that's not happening now. I'm, you know, basically the lead singer who can't lead sing everything because it's just physically impossible. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when you develop your skills, tour around the globe, build the following, master your style, and so on. I mean, it really becomes a part of your life. But when it stops and you suddenly find yourself uh, running a bar or a brewery, did you switch that indicator from, you know, quote-unquote musician to quote-unquote businessman or you know, whatever you would choose? Uh, well, sort of, whatever. I, you, you, pour, you, you have a new project and you pour yourself into it. And personally, I like Joe Jobs, you know, uh, dishwashing. That's the best position in a restaurant, um, as far as I'm concerned. You won't get rich, but it's the best job to have. I like that kind of work. Only a, only a, being a businessman is, no, I was, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm a terrible businessman. <laughs> You know, I didn't really try to be one. I just kind of was in that position and not good at it, biding my time to do what I am good at, which is making beer. And music is, yeah, I just, music was something that, well, this is not what I'm going to be doing. I still played here and there different things. And like I say, I still was writing music. And I did, of course, that project with the with Compressor Head and the Robots. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately after when Nobis Snow was basically retiring. So I was still getting lots of musical, my musical yayas, as they say. Uh, but, you know, you know, whatever, you find something new in your life and you then you apply your energies to it. And uh, uh, so that's what I did. I, you know, it's like being a musician. I, you know, I was, I, I am, and I am a professional musician because people pay me. Uh, but it's, it's just... That is a passion in life, and brewing beer is maybe not quite as an intense passion, but it's a passion, and I'm very happy to apply myself to that. So, uh, as far as like how I kind of switch gears, it's you know, it's it's nothing that profound. It's just moving from one thing to another. You've moved to your land where you are now in in the Canadian forest in 2013. Am I correct? Yep. Yep. I guess it's quite an existential climate, isn't it? Well, uh, I purchased some land up here uh, at the end of the road uh, back in the mid-90s. Subsequently then had children and spent a lot of time up here recreationally. But uh, uh, but the kids more or less grew up down in Vancouver and went to school and whatnot. And I knew I would eventually end up living here. Um, but through circumstances, you know, that re- my relationship with their mother dissolved and and you know became that sort of separated with children situation uh but eventually by 2013 vancouver was you know expensive and the kids were getting older and um it just it didn't make sense for me 
I couldn't really afford it anymore. So I knew this place was here and I didn't have to move. The most difficult thing to do is moving further away from your kids. Uh, but in the end, it was the best for everyone, including me. And uh, everything's fine. Everything's great. Uh, and I got to end up living where I wanted to live anyway. So, yes, it does change your life. And it is a big change. Uh, but again, it's not incredibly profound. It's just moving from one stage to the next. I've been actually thinking that if you would look at the, you know, at at art and literature specifically, it turns out that this idea of, you know, getting from one place to the forest land, you know, I wouldn't call it escapism, but sometimes it is, right? So it turned out to be the way out for artists dealing with either crisis state or looking for something. Eventually, if you would look at people like Jackson Pollock, Walt Whitman, uh, the Lake Poets in the UK, all of them discovered something like living close to to the nature, which, which you know, makes me think that after, after living in this sort of environment, you, as a musician, you, you rediscovered yourself focusing on different aspects of your work and right now came up with Dead Bob, which is a completely incredible project to me. Yeah, well, I agree that, you know, nature, shall we say, has a, a profound effect, if you realize it or not, on everyone. And you take any child and put them out in the woods, they will feel entirely at home and they will feel as though that that is a natural place to live. If you grow up specifically never being able to experience the outdoors, quote unquote, uh, when you get there, it's it's kind of frightening. But never do you feel as though you're, I, well, of course, never, whatever. There's, there's always exceptions. People who go, Bleh, I hate this shit and go <laughs> home. But, you know, but generally speaking, people go, they, they feel as though they're returning to some part of themselves that has always been there, always is there. Like even just a park, like, you know, cities without parks are not the same as cities with parks. Even just going to a park, people are naturally attracted because the being in a natural or quasi-natural surrounding literally brings you down to earth. And it's not as though, from my personal experience, growing up in Canada, you're, you're never more than a half an hour away from the fucking wilderness, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, sure. Yes, you can grow up in Toronto and never leave the city limits, but that's not really how most people live in this country. And and the same as me. Victoria was a totally urban, white, wealthy, suburban city, white in, a, in its sort of colonial whatever uh, uh, history as a town certainly plenty of diverse cultures uh, in Canada and there, but but you're right there. I mean, I get in the car, we go party. Oh, let's go. I'm, you know, high school, we go out to the beach or we go to a lake and we go camping and you're, you're, nature is right there. Um, and it's always right there. It's always in your backyard. People, you know, tourists will come to Vancouver and I'm going to go for a hike in the mountains and they're never seen again. This happens every year. Like they don't realize that you just walked out into the wilderness. <laughs> And and you can get lost. <laughs> so I don't know if this is a Canadian thing, but certainly for me, being being uh, being able to enjoy a natural surrounding as well 
as growing up and working, touring in completely urbanized settings, nightclubs, big cities, uh, living in Vancouver for 20 years, uh, basically. You know, I, I feel really lucky to have this wide variety of experiences traveling the world getting out of your own country getting out of your own fucking town um not not everyone does and i've been extremely lucky to be able to do that um so moving here it's not as though i was searching for something or that i i stumbled across and found something i came to an environment that i was already familiar with and knew i would end up in and so artistically no it wasn't I, I wasn't, I didn't find inspiration. I found some inspiration for other things. I found, like I mentioned earlier, I like to work with wood. I'm, you know, I'm able to bring down trees and mill them and make things right here on my property. You know, as, and this not, it's not something new. I enjoyed this from being a child uh, building, you know, my dad go out and help him hammer something together. So I'm able to revisit pleasures and 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 experiences that that I've had all my life so then and and yes definitely would I move back to Vancouver no <laughs> I'm not going to move back to Victoria no this is an incredible place to end up but it is the end result of a long life of experiences not necessarily the start of something brand new and except of course you know, you know, whatever, moving away from my immediate family and having a new logistical arrangement with things. Um, it was, it was really just, yeah, I knew I was going to be here. And musically, um, as I mentioned before, you know, Dead Bob was the product of me out doing my own thing, but it all came afterward. So it wasn't though I had to come here to discover it. That's just, I, came here and then I had the opportunity. When I discovered Dead Bob, you know, the project when we, you know, when we started, basically, as you mentioned, you decided to release it without any plan, which is why it came out as a digital release. However, once again, when I saw the name, I was thinking this might be a conceptual project but obviously you started this project having something in your notebook do you have like any idea or any feeling in terms of where you would love it to go to dead bob is very much a work in progress because now it is entering the realm of uh well a live performance it's now well i'm working with other musicians of which of course like ford pierre for instance i've been doing projects with him on and off for decades and uh, uh byron slack from the invasives who's on guitar he's co-written a couple of these songs because i'm you know for instance i'm not a profound or a prolific lyricist the biggest roadblock to completing songs because they they um, almost always aren't strong as as purely instrumental music it, they're written to have words and singing Often I have melodies and counter melodies and, and choruses all in my head, what it needs to be, just not necessarily the text to fill those voids. So I, I've collaborated with other musicians uh, to complete things. And now I'm performing with these people. And so where does this go from here? Well, the next album is already written and almost, almost completed. Um, again, just sort of mining this enormous catalog of backlog of music that I've accumulated over the years. Um, so it's still me 
writing my own music and arrangements, but uh, it, it can't exist that way forever. It, the, 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 the band needs to evolve. If it's going to be a band, then, then that will naturally begin to evolve. And, and I'm, you know, these people aren't just hired guns. Well, I have no money, so I can't pay anybody. <laughs> They're there because they want to be, and we hopefully will go play shows and get paid. We'll see. Um, so this is not like, okay, this is me, and I'm going to hire people to do it for me. This is me, and I'm going to run out of music, and maybe we, sh we, maybe we need to start creating stuff together. So it is, as I say, a work in progress. I'm not sure where it's going to go. The first album, the, this first album, Lifelike, it also kind of formed itself in these, in these ways. First of all, it's the first collection of songs that actually got finished. Now, that said, mm -hmm. as I was getting songs finished... Um, I could see which songs I'm already arranging in my head. Like, how does this album have to flow? Well, you know, this one is close to done, but it doesn't fit with these ones. So I'm I'm already arranging the album as the songs are being completed and deciding how they're going to flow. And then, and and lyrically, they start to to form a certain tone. And the album is really ends up being surprise, surprise about anxiety and mm -hmm. and, and um, uh, you know. You know, my, my life has been full of anxiety for, for a while, and the world is in, in, a, in, a, in an uptick, shall we say, of anxiety. And, and so it's, it doesn't surprise me that these songs um, start taking that bent. Uh, Lifelike was simply a pet project of mine, the song itself. I found the old demo, my original demo for the song, which was way more of a pop song. It was always a pop song. And I thought, hey, you know what? Just for fun, I'm going to make a pop song out of this. The, the original No Means No version was, the arrangement was somewhat flat. We weren't the right band for the song. But I always thought that it was one of my favorite collaborations with Rob as far as music and words. Wow. Um, so I always thought it was really strong, the, the way the words and the music went together. So I just did it to, to do it. And then I was so pleased with it. Uh, you know, I had this idea of it being more choral and I wanted to be somewhat, um, uh, not just so male-centric, you know, with these big, lifelike male voices all through it. Sure. Um, I, uh, and I, I met and befriended Selena Martin uh, through Tom Holliston. And I thought, oh, her voice would be perfect. She's a great singer. And so I just said, hey, you feel like singing this song with me? And that was done remotely. And she lives in France, I think in Marseille. And she just did that. She just sang the song here. And, and we tried it a couple of times back and forth. And, and I added my voice. We were never together at the same time. But I wanted to create that feel of, of uh, non-sexually or non-gender whatever you know it's like not just male but and i would have if i could have if i had the money that whole middle section with the choir i would have had a, 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 a an actual choir sing it you know some boys choir or whatever church choir or something you know what i'm saying but you know i, I think would've. i think you've done a really great job with this specific song uh, well thank you so much i i was also proud of it and 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 it went on the record only because of that, because I finished it, and there it is, and it, I like it. It wasn't as though I'm like uh, planning on it. When I did that song and finished it, there was no even real 
plan to release anything. So, um, so this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, how, you know, just songs were getting done without really thinking about being a band. And I didn't have a name. There was no dead Bob. There was just music that I was making. So they, you know, the, the tim- timber of the, of the album, it, it also just evolved and formed itself in, as part of the process. I think it's a great place to get into the evolution of the punk rock from the late 70s to early 80s. Right now, having your experience and, you know, with me knowing this history a little bit, basically post-punk emerging in 78, 79, having artists like Public Image Limited overthinking the values of punk rock and coming from... This, you know, the same background, basically, but making a different music with a different feel versus, you know, you understand there were a ton of bands who wanted to play music discharge style. You know, I'm not saying that it's specifically mm-hmm. bad in terms of the musical evolution, but, you know, when you have records like, you know, Sex Mad or Small Parts Related and Destroyed or Wrong, each of which is very different, but the ethics is there, even though musically it's far beyond just punk rock. So what was your mentality like and what pushed the transition of, uh, you know, let's say we shouldn't be in this box, we should look for something, which is like, once again, still what you are doing right now. And that connects that Bob, you know, pretty good. Yeah, Dead Bob is simply a continuation of what I've done all my life. You know, apart from the fact that I was simply by myself, the impetus and the inspiration and the and and to some degree the process in my own mind is no different than when I was a teenager. So I guess it goes back to what I'm saying. You know, we grew like punk rock was kind of this, you know, DIY, do do what you want. There's no, it's not. You know, this you're not, how shall we say, it's not a battle of the bands. Who's going to win? You know, like who could play the best? It, it was about just expressing yourself. And and public image, like, yeah, we, uh, there you go. All those post-punk bands were huge inspirations too. Gang of Four, and these were all huge uh, influences on us too about just there's such a diverse approach to this music. Don't be worried about you know, don't try to sound like someone, just try to sound like yourself, be yourself. And that's easier said than done, of course. Uh, we managed to do it. Uh, Robbie was a great writer, is a great writer. And our our musical backgrounds uh, were, were very, you know, rich and diverse. There was lots to draw from. But the uh, the idea of, of taking all those things and creating something new and not being afraid to, to follow, where, take, to go where the music is leading you. And not like, oh, well, we have to, you know, it has to be this guitar sound and it has to be, you know, we have to have this chorus and this blah, blah, blah here and there and, and, and the cookie cutter approach to writing music, which is great. I mean, the Ramones, I mean, it was the same song over and over. <laughs> In fact, when we played the Ramones, sometimes we'd, you know, Robbie would get lost because he couldn't remember what song it was. You know, like, was this a song with when it went G two times and, and E once or was it the E twice in this one? And you know, it's like, which is wonderful. I mean, the Ramones were as well a ginormous inspiration. The music was so simple and pop. You know, 
so it's it's taking all of those elements and we never stopped doing that i mean i stopped being really following music i mean once you have kids and you're touring and you're you know that is the process of 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 writing but i've already had all these um all these i've had had 20 years at that point of knowing how i'm going to re- or are we knowing how we are going to approach our writing? Um, so by the two thousands, you know, I wasn't really following music too much. I mean, you, you'd hear it, you'd come across it, you'd see bands, but it wasn't like the seventies and early eighties where you're like looking for every new thing and and very very uh, focused on all the music that's going on. And when hip hop came around, I wasn't enthralled like I was with punk rock. I don't know why, maybe just culturally or. It didn't interest me that that much. Although I remember the message, what was it, the Grandmaster Flash or whatever. Mm-hmm. We all fucking love that shit. It was this is great, and and you know, and and even that has 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 influenced the the whole idea of sampling and looping. All was influencing. It's all in everything that we continue to do. It's in my music now. So it, it's it's constantly uh, absorbing what's around you and then trying to reform it they say what is it this quote i just heard the other day like nobody uh, uh what was the quote um yeah everything's been already already written mm-hmm. you know it's like all all music has already been written but it's not been written by you so that's kind of what the magic of music and and embracing that or not <laughs> Just playing the same fucking three chords all the time for every record. If that's what you love and, and if that's what people want to go and, and listen to, then fine. That's great. So, uh, you know, I feel uh, because of the Sid Vicious stereotype, a lot of the people p- portray punk rock artists in a certain negative, almost marginal way. When, when did you notice that people take your creativity a bit differently you know i'm talking about the situation where you as a performer as an artist you you feel you got the idea that your music appeals a bit more to people on a creative level versus you know if you are playing for you know for punk rock audience uh for you know the basement gigs whatever and obviously the climate would be you know quite specific uh well it's kind of hard to say but you know as as we got more popular but also as the kind of music got more popular towards the end of the 80s and what we were doing before finally you know i guess everyone says when nirvana broke and never mind that's when everything changed and uh and it was kind of like that but it was peaking like we were garnering big audiences uh you know like uh in Europe in 1990, 89, maybe 90, 91, the last couple of years with Andy, shows were getting big. Mm-hmm. And lots of people, lots of excitement. Um, and I suppose when Andy left the band and we started touring again in 94, and suddenly, you know, the audiences weren't as big and then kind of dissipated, then you realize that the size of audience you're playing now, those are the people that really loved you musically. The others were there because it was hip to be there. Um, you know, that was the thing to go do and go see. 
that kind of experience, that kind of concert, the type that we did. Uh, we were unique uh, amongst them, but it, so there's an ebb and flow of popular music. What's cool, and a lot of people just go to shows because everyone's going to the show and then in the end you see uh, the people that i've seen you 25 times well there's that's somebody who loves your music and they're there because they love your music and 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 people love our music because yeah because it's unique and it's honest and and uh, you know it's it's you know we we're just kind of who we are there's not really a lot of pretense um and and so to answer your question it's hard but essentially you know you know who your fans are because they're there now <laughs> 20 mm -hmm. 30 years later you got people like oh i'm so happy you're doing music again and you know i didn't think i'd hear you play drums again blah 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 so yeah we're not uh, uh you we you know and maybe Taylor Swift will always have hundreds of thousands of people love her because they do. That's the, the that's the scale and, and the world she lives in. Um, but for us, it's yeah, we we've got very loyal fans and they and those ones that really dig what we do musically. I think that's why they dig us because of what we do musically. Uh, but who knows? There could be a lot of other reasons. <laughs> and, and also, you you understand, and this probably something I realized with you know getting older, that you can truly really buy experience. So, like, if you were lucky to be on SST, Alternative Tentacles, Touch and Go, like, and people know you from from it, people appreciate your music, even if you aren't getting you know, the same royalties as, you know, any of the popular these days uh, artists does, but still there is a, a certain, in my opinion, there is a bigger degree of appreciation probably because these days people understand like how much social media means and, you know, working in PR, I understand this as well. So yeah. th this concept of... Uh, of a certain music being over promoted, I think it's really taking, uh, you know, taking popularity right now in a in a good sense. Well, uh, yeah, uh, but also one thing about like having conversations with you, and 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 being asked questions about music along these lines, is that you have to understand that a musician has really no concept of how people look at them, uh, an artist. They only see it from their point of view uh so like you know people ask like what is the song about well you can answer that question a lot better than i can because it doesn't matter what i think it's about it only matters what you think it's about it only matters the only reason your experience with the song is your experience with the song you and if you don't know what it's about well that doesn't matter either it's i can't I mean, maybe I could, well, you know, it sort of talked about this or, you know, I was thinking that, but who cares what I'm thinking? The only thing that matters is how you are affected by that song in a good way, even in a bad way, a, like a negative reaction is better than no reaction at all. <laughs> what do they say? Nonsense is better than no sense at all. You know, it's, uh, uh, so it, often it's, I find it odd when musicians talk about themselves like myself, like I'm doing now. Because there's not a lot of insight there. The insight is to 
to ask yourself why you know if you care why do i love this and and does it matter um you know you love it that's that's really as far as it needs to go you feel something from it then that's awesome then then the magic has happened and and uh, sort of dissecting things afterwards doesn't you know doesn't it, it's you know it's not part of what the experience is which is especially live a group experience but the, what the audience is feeling and thinking and reacting is largely and dram dramatically different than what the band is feeling and doing but at the same time there is a co collective um recognition that this is happening and that we're all here while it's happening yeah uh, i i i've kind of lost where I, why i was going in this direction in the conversation but i just wanted to to, to say that uh you know the how people like you say like who, who you know how do you distinguish those who really are appreciating your the, the 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 trajectory of your career and and what you did with your music and how you weren't this and you were that well it's a personal thing i mean that it, in this whole book that's coming out with jason it was like talking about approaching early on i said you know this whole book should not even feature us why am i doing an interview the, what would be very interesting is to get all the stories of people who had a story about no means no and how they felt this way at this point or why they liked it you know that's to me <laughs> more interesting obviously because you know i don't really you know my thoughts on it are just my thoughts on it i don't know if you if you catch my drift here in this tangent i'm on well i i actually do because right now i'm i'm working on you know on the similar project an oral history and you know i i do ask these people all all sorts of weird questions starting with you know what was the smell in your rehearsal room like just to get the feeling to put you being a listener a reader into that situation if, even though you know some people might find it strange or uh, you know whatever descriptive you would use but i i really think that in some cases it it really depends on like how many details you are giving to people because eventually you can give a general answer to the question and uh, people could still interpret your words in very different ways oh of course i mean there are people listening to dead bob that 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 will read into the the each song and the order of the song and the meanings of the songs and and the the significance of the artwork they'll read in what 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 they think what 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 it means to them and that's exactly what it should do and that's kind of my point it's like you know i could say well you know actually when i was writing that song i was in the middle of taking a crap and i you know, <laughs> you know who cares <laughs> what what i was doing when i was playing a song you know and uh, you know what was what were the posters on the wall you know like it, it's really meaningless in the end you know i understand what you're saying it's like you're trying to you know put the humanity in like to to try to yeah exactly that to put the humanity so people can uh, imagine the humanity that that's at work here and that's great and and i th and i think probably one of the things that people like and what i've always wanted to be is that yeah i'm not trying to pretend to be anything here it's, there's no real illusion um the illusion is only simply because the audience sees only the very end product 
uh, and then and then has to interpret it for themselves and take out of it what they, they either like it or they don't or it's okay or it's great or it's you know whatever so uh, there's uh, and the backstory is very interesting to people maybe for me like i say uh, listening to other people's stories would be far more interesting to me than a book where I'm doing all the talking. Mm. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Sure. But, you know, getting to that, Bob, right now you are about to get on tour, which would be like your first big tour since the end of No Means No, basically. How do you feel about this? Uh, nervous. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. There's some big shoes to fill here. Uh, you know, there's expectation, you know, and with no means no, there was no expectation. Uh, not until we were well into it and well-oiled machine. You know, Dead Bob, literally, we're going to play our first show. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. But the people who are showing up are going to show up expecting or hoping to see what they saw before, which was the end result of years of work of a well-oiled, like I say, uh, musical um, entity. This is a, okay, let's try to get this together and let's try to bond and let's try to make it work musically. So it's, it's yeah, we're, it's right, you know, it's like going from zero to a hundred. You know, there's no warming up. Got to get it right the first time. But at the same so time... It's a bit nerve-wracking. I'm, I'm a confident, of course. Everyone I'm playing with are great musicians, and I'm, I'm still banging the drums well, and blah, blah, blah. But it's a bit nerve-wracking. And it's also me, you know? It's not me and my brother and Tom or Andy. You know, it's not... You know what I mean? It's it's basically me as the, you know, hangover, as the no-means-no, as the ghost of no-means-no, you know? So uh, it's a bit nerve-wracking, to be honest. But at the same time, it's exciting. And this will tell a lot of tales. The, the nine shows we're playing in November uh, in here in British Columbia will, you know, that'll be okay. And we can take stock. How did that all go? What, what was it like? Is this something that's going to work? So it's, like I say, uh, like I have said earlier on, it's a work in progress. And at this stage, it's kind of like, okay, well, let's see how things go. But we're making plans, of course. We mm. want to get out and play uh, down in the States and, and definitely want to get back over to Europe. And and uh, But we have to be a good band, first, foremost. I mean, it always boils down to that. You can make all the plans in the world, but you, you, you it's, it's all got to be working. After all your experiences, you know, I'm talking about like compressor head of you being conductor informally and you taking and working on most of the dead bob material as a conductor once again did it give you a different set of the musical language you are using with your colleagues right now versus those situations when there was more of a collectivity yeah well it's definitely different and yes it is that it's like okay well i need you to play it this way or like uh, okay we need the vocals to be sung this way we're trying to recreate something that was created uh, independently uh, with a bunch of new people as well as getting used to playing together so yeah is it's a it's a different animal it's a and it's and and you're right i'm, I'm kind of like the conductor but we also all really know each other as people so it's just a matter of everyone um focusing on what they have to learn and do and then and then moving forward from that but as, as i said early on in this conversation that you know you know when you have 
uh, when you play with somebody for so long, everyone just naturally does, well, not entirely, but you, you know what's going to happen. And then here it's like, you know, like, uh, oh, well, you just added this note and you just played it this way naturally yourself, which is not the way it's written. And I have to stop and go, okay, do I want to nitpick at these little details or do I let these uh, let uh, these natural um, mutations happen so it yeah it's an and that's the other reason of being kind of it's a bit of an unknown and a work in progress and a little nervous ner- nerve-wracking because uh, it's not you know familiar ground it seems to me like when you are doing something long enough having this punk rock routine and also being open to the new ideas uh, you know especially when you reach out to certain age passing through these uh, once again basement gigs and and so on and so on until you know the point where you are a professional musician with your punk rock background but still it, it really open opens new doors for you because of the ethic because of the mentality your attitude which is unlike when you know a lot of the studied musicians would do Pro, it's it's probably I would quote John Zorn in a different way, who tells that uh, some sometimes not studied musicians come with more original ideas than those who have an academic background. How do you feel about this in terms of those ideas you you've been coming with, especially you know even if we are talking about in the context of no means no because. I still think that one is really one of the most outstanding records of yours of that era. Like, it's really great. Well, uh, certainly with the people I'm working with now, you know, they all kind of come out of the same uh, ethos, you know, so to speak, very much so. And and yes, uh, it's a wide variety of, it's mostly DIY musicians. I think Ford has had, formal training but he's been doing it so long and doing his own thing for so long and actually christy on trumpet guitar she's a music teacher (laughs) (laughs) she's uh she plays she teaches trumpet has students and whatnot and is uh has a much more formal education than probably the rest of us in that respect uh but you know she plays in her own rock and roll band and she she you know, she's a, a ball of energy and a force on stage. And uh, so it, it is a bit of a wide variety. And uh, uh, yes, uh, I, I, these people I'm working with are the people that uh, that I really wanted to work with. And I'm really happy and feel lucky that they all are totally keen too. Like I said before, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm not like, this is my thing and I'll just pay people to do it for me. Um, no, they're all, they're all unique in their own way. They're all into it because they understand it and come from the same world and they're keen and then, and also all super talented. So when I say a work in progress, we'll see, you know, what, what happens when we start writing some songs together or writing, or I'm writing new stuff specifically for these people uh, and vice versa with, with them individually it's sort of we'll see where that goes how do you feel like when you are writing something once again as more as a conductor but already knowing these people their specific taste of playing their approach mentality even though once again you mentioned mentality is pretty much the same but when you are writing right now for 
these people? What what is your work like? Do you give them some space to interpret things or like is there any communication between you and this person, that person? More so lyrically than musically. I'm still kind of in my own head musically. Um, I haven't written anything terribly new in the last couple of years because it's just been so much <laughs> old stuff to be completed. But yes, and, and I and I frustrate, frustrate myself. Uh, uh, I've finished the, the newest thing uh, I finished was recently uh, read, and it's probably the little, I think the last collaboration with my brother in the sense that there was an old demo he did 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago of a song that, you know, was he just, he demoed a bunch of different stuff. And he had this song that I really liked the, the, the singing and the words and the music was, didn't, wasn't overly thrilling me, but it never, never ended up. We never ended up getting to it and working on it, but I always really liked the tone of the song and the words. And it's pretty simple. And, and the way he had sung the, a, a particular harmony in it. And and then I was actually just testing out a new, I rearranged stuff in my workshop and reset all the recording, my, my kind of really basic recording system here. And I was just kind of banging around on the drums and, 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 and came up with a couple of drum patterns and started putting some music to it. So this is kind of the freshest of, of writing that I've done in a while. Mm -hmm. And then it dawned, and then it dawned on me that structurally this will work with his, with with the words and the way he sung them on this old demo. And I was like, you know what? I could probably just lift that and drop it right on this, you know, figuratively. And, and did you uh, show your so idea to Rob? <laughs> What's that? Well, I I said, hey Rob, I'm stealing your your words from the song and I'm making my own out of it. Okay, <laughs> he doesn't care, and. Uh, Again, like, well, this totally worked. This is great. And of course, I do it in a way that is like I've got two drum sets and, and and I'm singing something that there's not a hope in hell that I could sing this and play it at the same time. <laughs> so it's like I keep fucking shooting myself in the foot by writing stuff that is not really that easy to translate to a band, you know, unless we had all learned it and and, and practice it all together at the same time. In which case it would be different because then it would be all this other input and all this like accommodating the instrumentation and accommodating what can actually be performed and sung. And it wouldn't be me singing, so the song would sound completely different. Um, everyone else's voice in this band is utterly different than mine or Rob. So, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm trapped in these two worlds in that respect. So moving forward, yeah, the, the music of Dead Bob could become dramatically different. Um, once you have all these other voices coming in and all, and the way songs are arranged and performed because they're not just out of the thin air in my head. <laughs> mm. So it's, 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 uh, it's, you know, it's, that is a challenge. Like, how do I, how do, how, do, how does this transition happen? And, and how does this writing change? And it will in some ways, but lyrically it's different. I'm lyrically, uh, a couple of these songs, I mean, I'm, hopefully not terribly insulting people and screwing with their work but you know i'll have lyrics like i wrote this for this song and i'll listen to it and then i'll start editing it and and become the producer and changing things and and stuff and and of course in the end it's like everyone's agrees on what's happened but there's been much more of a collaborative approach lyrically more than anything else so far 
It was just announced that Ronk is getting reissued by Alternative Tentacles coming out the next year. And obviously previously you did this with Wrong Records due to the distribution deal you, you know, you wanted to get. How do you feel about getting back to Alternative Tentacles and working with this record label again? Well, uh, I approached Alternative Tentacles uh, about six years ago. It was about 2017. I realized, you know, okay, well, the back catalog, I think, needs to find a home. And uh, and I knew that that Biafra would really like that. And I also felt it was very appropriate because, you know, it, largely no means no success was the fact that people came to see us because we were on alternative tentacles. It was very old school, you know, back when people actually would give bands a chance because they liked the label they were on and uh, and said, well, if this label is putting this band out, there's probably something to it in in that world. Right. So without a doubt, our first tour in Europe, especially uh, in 1988, which really sort of accelerated our career for a better lack of a better term. Everyone that came to those shows, they didn't know who Nomi Snow were. They were there because we were on alternative tentacles. And what is Jello doing these days? And why is he putting this band out? Which, again, is like why, you know, and why we were playing punk rock shows everywhere, too, was that. You know, it was a very, very uh, well-liked and well-known independent punk rock label. So it just made sense to me that that's, I mean, we didn't have to. You know, we, there's no contractual obligation to do so. And likely, if I took it to another label, we'd probably make more money, <laughs> to be honest and frank. But that wasn't the point. The point was that really this is, you know, out of respect and appreciation and that's where it should be. So that's my, was my thoughts. And that's what I initiated a uh, long time ago. Now, it took forever for anything to happen, which was a little frustrating. But I was so busy with my life being completely absorbed uh, up here in the pub that, uh, you know, I said, well, it'll all happen when it happens. And now it's happening. So, um, which is great. And uh, right now, I don't know if Dead Bob is going to end up on Alternative Tentacles. I'm, we're still debating on what to do about that. I've been working with a lot of new, different, and excited people. Uh, so that might go in a different direction. I haven't made any decisions yet. Uh, but very happy to see the, the back catalog uh, uh, coming out slowly but surely. And I know there's, you know, wrong, of course, is sort of the default first big release it's as you know it's our most popular album uh, without a doubt so um so awesome to see that coming out and very happy that it is uh, coming out where it is obviously with your plans and the activities right now it would make some sense to ask you do you have any plans in terms of trajectories or format of the next releases many people you know, refer to like the music sounds, uh, you know, Dead Bob and some of the stuff is very cinematic. It's another thing that I would love to explore too. If there's any listeners out there that uh, I would love to see what it's like to try to put music to, to film. And I love film and uh, it's something, in fact, just a sidebar uh, during COVID when I was working on music, I also have about an album's worth of music that is not punk rock or anything like that. And, uh, and, and because I became obsessed with writing something that sounded like a television theme. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, really, and realized how incredibly influenced I was by 
70s television thing. It, it really dawned on me <laughs> how how I arranged songs. And, uh, and Carl Stalling, you know, all those mm-hmm. Warner Brothers cartoons as a child, those arrangements were embedded in me somehow subconsciously. <laughs> and uh, it's just something I've come to realize in the last few years. So, um, yeah, yeah, literally, I probably wrote about seven things trying to be. Well, what it was is I wanted to write a commercial for my pub. I wanted to write a theme song for it, and I did. And never got released because it just whatever. We were trying to do a video, and it got shot, but never edited. And then the money all ran out anyway, so it never was completed. But uh, yeah, I got a few little fun gems stuck away. I've got a song that, like where I live, is referred to as the end of the road. And to me, it's like, well, here's a fucking television um, program just waiting to be written. There's so many crazy characters around here. You know, the typical formula, weird town somewhere in the world. And uh, and I wrote a song, so I got a, I've already got the theme song. If somebody wants to start writing the script. <laughs> yeah, so if, if anybody listening to this uh, conversation has any ideas in terms of bringing John to write yeah. a soundtrack, he would be very interested. <laughs> yeah. I'd be very, I'd have a lot of fun with that. Then I could do everything in my head. 